You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Scurvy Legs, Brendan, Kruger, Nikita, M.D., Big Beard, Willie P., Schmarls, Josiah, Logan, Torso, Cannon Monkey, Axios, Jack Joyce, The Knight of Dampier, Lost Again, The Navigator, Pablo, Governor Roop, Gin Soaked Jim, Ward, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Drunken Dak, Eric the Red, the Pirate Nopales, Hefei, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Let's take just a second to talk about the Quakers. And it really will be short. I want to look at the Quakers briefly for a couple of reasons. They tend to be overshadowed by the Puritans when we talk about American religious dissident communities. The Quakers, or as they're sometimes called the Friends came into being around the same time as the Puritans, and they have a bit in common. Both sects stood against idolatry. They found the Church of England to be a corrupt, sinful state mouthpiece. Both churches usually had an anti-slavery stance or even open abolitionism. But the biggest differences between the Puritans and the Quakers were their stances on democracy and on women's rights. Puritans tended to suppress democratic policies and the rights of women. The Quakers advocated for both. Women were permitted to hold positions of authority in both the community and the church. But no one was allowed to hold positions of arbitrary power. One of the core tenets of the Friends was, and I suppose still is, the personal relationship with God shared by all people. That means that God requires no representatives on earth. That means no popes, no kings, and no lesser lords delegated by either. It looked not unlike some of what we talked about last time. That passage found in a general history of the pirates, the manifesto of the priest Caraccioli. Except in the argument of what those God-given rights permit us. Caraccioli told us that 
if war were declared upon us, we had the right to take the offensive part as well as the defensive. But in the eyes of the Quakers, the offensive part was not acceptable. For any followers of the Prince of Peace, those who have been instructed to turn the other cheek. And in early colonial America, those ideals were displayed most publicly by William Penn, the man who founded the colonies of Pennsylvania and Delaware. Now, we're not going to delve into all of that today, but I would like to note that those were founded on the ideals of a constitutional representative republic. Penn himself advocated for a United States of America, not the nation that came to be, not a free and independent nation, but a coalition that could arbitrate differences between the different colonies. William Penn argued for a similar system in Europe, a United States of Europe, he called it, but you might consider it a European Union. And it was intended to provide the same service, all of it in an attempt to end warfare and end injustice, which, you know, didn't exactly pan out. But at the time, it did garner a bunch of support all around the world. Other religious factions from Europe, similarly-minded religious factions like the Mennonites and the Amish, they came to Pennsylvania and were given lands and rights. They helped to found a colony based on equity, justice, democracy, and independence. This, of course, was a terrible threat to everyone not in Pennsylvania, and they were terribly worried because their corruption from Pennsylvania and Delaware began to spread. It moved into New Jersey and seemed like it was making its way into Connecticut and Maryland. That's why we see so many Quakers tried and executed in record numbers. In Puritan and Anglican and Catholic strongholds, Quakers were a threat the Quakers have often been given credit for establishing a bunch of early American principles, and I think that's true. But I would argue that they did almost as much, maybe more, to found the robust early American legal system. They were just on the business end of that system. But the Quaker menace was spreading. Finally, it... But the Quaker menace was spreading. Finally making its way into the council's and even the governor's office of Rhode Island. This is episode 199, One Last Ride. There's a distinct conflict of interest in a Quaker governor. A governor, legally speaking, was appointed by the king, even if they were actually elected, and they were given all powers marshal by the king. They were the supreme military commanders of their colonial holding. But Quakers were pacifists. Rhode Island didn't have any armed forces. They didn't even have a militia, beyond a group of men who might own some guns in case of wild animal attacks or bandits or pirates. That conflict of interest becomes even more complicated in wartime. The first elections that were held in New England following the overthrow of Edmund Andros were a bit of a shock to those in power. The radicals in the colonies, the Democrats and religious minorities, really came out in force. Now, this did have an effect in places like New York and Massachusetts, but nowhere so strongly as Rhode Island. 
they elected a bunch of Quakers to colonial office, including the governor, a man named John Easton. The election of John Easton was actually a pretty big deal in terms of American history. See, he was elected. The governor of a crown colony of England was elected, not appointed. And this wasn't the first time that a governor had been elected in New England, but King James II really hated the practice. That's why he created the Dominion of New England. That's why he appointed Edmund Andros. This did not work out in his favor. However, the new King William was surprisingly lax about the whole issue. Of course, he did come from a republic, the Netherlands. But in his view, as long as the colonists protected their land from France, as long as they didn't go into rebellion, and as long as they paid their taxes, William was good with the situation. He could spend his time fighting King Louis and not have to worry about the Americans. John Easton's time in office was consumed by nothing so much as King William's war, the Nine Years' War in America. Now, the war in America had been filled so far with raids and skirmishes, a couple of big battles, and a couple of terrible massacres. But Rhode Island was lucky in all of that. They were surrounded, on the landward side, by other English colonies. Massachusetts, Connecticut, New York, they all provided a buffer between Rhode Island and French Canada. That's a great position to be in, especially if you're a colony with no military. John Easton, the pacifist Quaker governor of Rhode Island, stayed out of the war as much as possible. Now, he was pressured to join the fight from every side. Every other governor in the region was begging him to get involved. But Rhode Island didn't have the men to spare. It's a tiny colony, it's a tiny state. Their manpower was tied up in maritime affairs, shipping and trade and fishing. Even had the Quaker government of Rhode Island been inclined to get involved in the war, they really weren't able to. John Easton, though, did agree to send them money. Enough money to keep himself in the good graces of the rest of New England, and maybe to keep the English in the fight. However, a message arrived from Boston, a message that warned of a menace lurking off the coast of America. That message warned them of, quote, a French privateer, who we have information lies about Cape Cod and has taken 23 vessels which belong to this country. End quote. Now, none of those 23 prizes were big. Mostly, they were fishing ships and small merchant craft carrying foodstuffs and the like. The biggest prize that that French privateer had captured was a wine merchant. That's the only ship that he chose to keep in his possession, mostly because she was carrying wine and brandy, which the French privateers wanted. Nonetheless, 23 ships, even if they're small, 23 ships taken in a few short weeks is a significant blow. It's clearly not the work of some weak-kneed amateur dipping his toes into privateering during the war to make a quick buck. This was someone who knew what they were about. It was a serious problem. And then... On the 7th of July, 1690, a ship arrived at Boston. She was a merchantman who had recently been captured and plundered by the French, probably their 24th prize. That ship, however, carried some 50 additional sailors. They weren't pirates. That would be awesome. But no, these were just prisoners who had been released 
by the pirates, prisoners from all of those other captures. Fifty men who had been taken prisoner, probably to be ransomed off, were freely returned to Boston. This move suggested to the governor of Massachusetts one of two things. Either the French were no longer able to feed their prisoners and their own men, which is unlikely, or the French needed their ship free of extra weight. They needed to run light in the water to be as fast and nimble as possible. That was likely. It appeared that the pirates were planning something. But what really worried the government of Massachusetts was a name. The name that was on the lips of every man who had returned to Boston, once a captive of the pirates. That name, if he were in fact out there, if this was true, that name meant real trouble for the people of New England. Pierre Le Picard. Capitan Le Picard commanded a flotilla of three vessels. He had a bark as his flagship, a sloop of war, and another smaller sloop. And of course that wine ship. Pierre Le Picard was pirate nobility. He's been around for everything. He was a founding member of the Brethren of the Coast. Picard sailed alongside Francois Lolonnais, who granted him his first ship. He sailed with Henry Morgan on the raid against Maracaibo and then, of course, Panama. Picard was a captain and a sometimes admiral on both the first and second Pacific adventures. He was a, a real buccaneer, one of the old guard. If we agree that it was the same Pierre Le Picard, which... Nobody's really sure about, but if we assume that to be the case, he would have been in his sixties by this point. But age hadn't softened him. On 12 July, his flotilla arrived off the coast of Rhode Island at a place called Block Island. Block Island was small and home to a small community of peaceful families. And Pierre Le Picard, he landed on that defenseless little island with over a hundred men and then he defiled it. These were old-fashioned buccaneer tactics, like some of the worst buccaneer offenses, like some of those under Francois Lolonnais, just on a smaller scale. They plundered the community there at Block Island. They robbed them, naturally. But then there was what the official report called, quote, severely mistreating them, torture and rape and murder. This was... Well, I don't want to ascribe motivations here. It was war, after all. This was a wartime maneuver. But I can't help but think there must have been some personal motivations as well. I imagine this gang of old French pirates living out their days on Tortuga. But times were changing. The world was moving on, and many of them, I imagine, had retired. Their skills just weren't needed anymore. But then, the war came between France and England, and once again they were called into action. But it's here that to me things really start to get interesting. These pirates chose to attack Rhode Island. I have to think that this was not just happenstance. There were other, closer, richer communities they could have raided, but no, they traveled up the Atlantic seaboard to raid Rhode Island. And there were other old pirates in Rhode Island. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? 
Oh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. In the wake of the attack on Block Island, the people there. In the wake of the raid on Block Island, the people lit bonfires, quote, from Pakatuk to Sikonet. And the governor finally sent for someone to repel these French pirates. This must have been difficult. Governor Easton was a pacifist. Modern-day Quakers are exempted from the draft for that very reason. But his people were under attack and suffering. He had to do something, so Governor Easton turned to men who knew how to kill. He turned to Thomas Paine. Now, Thomas Paine was retired. He was spending his days building windmills and growing fruit on his small Rhode Island farm. More importantly, he did not have a crew underneath him any longer. Most of those were still in the West Indies, although some of those very likely were currently sailing under Pierre Le Picard up in Rhode Island. Only a couple of years passed, Thomas Paine and Pierre Le Picard had been compatriots, so Thomas Paine had to recruit men to sail under him. Now, there were a few ready to sail, but he still had to recruit 60 new men. We don't know much about who may or may not have been included, but I would point out the possibility of a young man who lived in Providence at the time, named Thomas II. We don't know that he sailed with Thomas Paine here. He might have been up in Canada, acting as a privateer, but it's not at all unlikely that he was in Providence. Now, getting their forces together took a little bit of time, and while doing so, Pierre Le Picard attempted to sneak a party of men ashore there at Providence. Had they succeeded, it might have been disastrous for the English in Rhode Island, but they failed. The landing party was spotted, and an alarm was raised, and many of those men that were gathering to sail with Thomas Paine rode out to meet them. The landing party retreated and went back to their flagship, but this was bad news for them. Now that their presence had been noted, there was no question where they might be. They were, certainly, close by. So, Governor Easton commandeered a Barbadian ship that was in Providence Harbor at the time and gave it to Thomas Paine for this mission. It was the ten-gun sloop, Loyal Steed. But the Loyal Steed was no warship, not even a proper sloop of war. However, it was what they had. 
alongside another craft, another small sloop under a Captain John Godfrey. It was not a promising fleet. Nonetheless, Thomas Paine set out for Block Island, the last known position of Pierre Le Picard. Now, the French weren't there at Block Island when the Americans arrived, but Paine did send some men ashore to give medical aid and food to the people there. It was a... It was a brutal scene, the kind of scene that would convince every Englishman who saw it that the French were the worst sort of villains, and to be fair, they were. It really lit a fire under the Englishmen, though. Once they had done what they could to help the people of Block Island, Thomas Paine took his ships out to hunt down Pierre Le Picard. It didn't take very long. Later, that very afternoon, the 21st of July, 1690, Thomas Paine spotted the approaching French fleet. Again, that's the 21st of July, 1690, the Battle of Block Island. The very last ride of Thomas Paine and Pierre Le Picard. The 21st of July, 1690, might be a date worth noting if you were interested in important dates in pirate history. Thomas Paine spotted Pierre Le Picard's fleet in the late afternoon. Not a huge force, but... The English were outgunned and outmanned. So Thomas Paine jumped right into action. He turned around and ran. Thomas Paine ran back to Block Island. When he arrived, he pulled up sharp in the shallows near the shore, riding parallel to the coastline. This put his back to landward. It protected his rear. It allowed all of his men to concentrate their guns on one side. It's a bit desperate. When you do this, you lose options, you lose maneuverability. But it was the best they had. When Pierre Le Picard saw Thomas Paine turn and run, it's here that I would love to see some historical fiction. You can really imagine Captain Picard, gray-haired but standing tall on the quarterdeck, watching Paine through his spyglass. When his old comrade flees, you can imagine him sighing lowering the glass and saying something like, Oh, my old friend, has age so unmanned you? And then giving the order to pursue. But in reality, it was nothing like that. Pierre Le Picard didn't even know that this was the flotilla sent against him, much less that it was commanded by Thomas Paine. The French assumed these ships to be small merchantmen out of Rhode Island, currently running for their life. He did give the order to pursue, but expected no real resistance when he caught them. And Thomas Paine wanted to give him that, exactly what he wanted. When the French drew close, Captain Paine gave the order to hold fire. He kept his guns hidden as much as possible and tried to project the image of a scared, cowering ship. In the eyes of the French, all was going according to plan. However... As Thomas Paine expected, Pierre Le Picard, quote, sent a piragua before them, full of men, with design to pour in their small arms fire on them and take them as their manner was, end quote. They sent a boat, a piragua, filled with maybe two dozen men armed with muskets to board the English and to capture them. And again, if this were fiction, you could picture Thomas Paine watching the piragua lower into the water and saying something like, Oh, you old fool. Has age so unmanned you? Because this was old-fashioned. These were the kind of tactics used by Pierre Legrand, that 
semi-mythic Tortuga buccaneer, maybe the first buccaneer. These were the tactics of the Brethren of the Coast. They much preferred boarding parties to sea battles. They had big guns, but man-to-man, sword-to-sword fighting was far preferred for the buccaneers. But tactics on the global scale had advanced since the glory days of the Brethren of the Coast. Ships in general were leaner and faster. They were better suited to mobile sea combat. And the guns, the guns were miles better. They were more accurate. They were less prone to exploding. But most of all, they were reliable. That Pierre Le Picard's first move was to send a boarding party suggests that he may have been a bit out of touch. As that piragua made for the loyal steed, the orders given by Thomas Paine were to hold their fire. The plan was to let the French get in close, to let them take a couple of small arms shots, and then to let the French board the English sloop, to let them think that all was well until they arrived on deck to find sixty tough men, all armed, to take them captive. That leverage might be enough to convince the French to just turn around, to leave American shores, but if not, it would be a couple of dozen men that were out of the fighting. Either way, a win for the English. But when the Piragua did finally get in range of the English fleet, they did open fire on the English. And instead of holding firm, the gunner on board the Loyal Steed returned fire. This was bad, it ruined the plan, but what made it worse is that it wasn't a full volley. If both ships had opened fire with full volleys at the same time, they likely would have sunk that piragua, maybe frightened the French off, but instead it was only four or five guns total. Not enough to do any damage, but enough to warn the French that this was in fact a force prepared to fight back. The piragua turned around. They started rowing back to their flagship, a flagship that had just opened sail and was currently moving to engage their smaller English enemy. The French arrived within range at about 5 p.m. on the 21st and opened up with a full broadside. Now, they had more guns than the English did, but Payne's decision to anchor in the shallows really saved the day here. This effectively doubled his guns, moving them all to one side of the ship. Still, the English were taking quite a beating. Firing at any target during the Age of Sail was difficult, but you really needed to be able to move to hope to hit anything ever. And the English currently did not have that option. Even though the English were standing still, the French had trouble hitting them, but they did score a few good hits. The English, though, didn't hit anything. For most of the battle, a battle that lasted from about 5 p.m. until nightfall. But the captain of that larger French sloop, the second-in-command of the entire fleet, well, he turned out to be a bit arrogant. According to one account, this second-in-command was, quote, a very violent, resolute fellow. He appears to have decided to move in on the English fleet, all on his own account. He wanted to take their ships by himself and make himself the hero of the day. Reportedly, when he got close enough for the English to see, this second-in-command was standing on the quarter-deck, drinking a glass of wine, and loudly cursing the English pigs. That was when Thomas Paine ordered his men to open fire. A cannonball hit that second-in-command and tore him in half. And he wasn't alone. 
The English volley tore through his crew. It killed more than a dozen men and injured far more than that. This was the first consequential English hit of the day, but it was enough. It did the job. The ship that they hit, the second in command, was out of commission. The men who were still on board and alive panicked. They jumped overboard to flee over to the flagship. Some of them got into boats and rowed over, but most of them swam. Now, it would not have been impossible for Pierre Le Picard to win the day regardless. Even with his two ships, he still had Thomas Paine outmanned and outgunned. But what do you imagine happens to the morale on board when a few dozen men show up on the scene covered in blood, missing limbs, and screaming? As you might imagine, the fight drained out of the French on board the flagship. Pierre Le Picard, who still could have won this thing, well, he was forced to turn and run, this time for real. Now, Thomas Paine did weigh anchor and attempt to chase after the French, and he appeared to be gaining for a time, but Pierre Le Picard made the hardest decision, perhaps, of his entire life. He ordered his men to abandon the wine ship. They left their ship full of wine and brandy, stranded, in the waters outside of Rhode Island, and as they sailed away, they, quote, fired a great shot through her bottom, end quote. A tragic day, I think we can all agree. When Thomas Paine arrived on the scene, he had another tough decision. To either chase after the French, which arguably is what he should have done, or to stop and salvage all of that wine and brandy. Thomas Paine decided to stop and try to salvage all of that wine and brandy. Sadly, though, tragically, even, the wine and brandy had sunk too low in the water to salvage any of it. At least that's what he would tell Governor Easton in a few days' time. Personally, I like to think that they were able to salvage at least a few casks of wine and brandy, but instead of returning them, he let his men at them. A bit of a reward for a job well done. In the meantime, Pierre Le Picard got away. Thomas Paine never saw sight of him again. Even the fleet out of Boston that had been assembled never caught sight of the French sails. This Battle of Block Island was almost the last mention of Pierre Le Picard anywhere in the record. There was one final mention in 1691, a little over a year later. Pierre Le Picard might have returned to North America. The governor of New York at the time would write, quote, The French privateer that lately visited Block Island has lain upon the coast and taken three small vessels belonging to this colony inward bound, vis-a-vis -vis from the West Indies and one from Connecticut. End quote. This might actually have been Pierre Le Picard, but on the other hand, maybe not. The career of Pierre Le Picard has been one long string of mysteries and inconsistencies. We don't even know for certain if Pierre Le Picard was one pirate or many different pirates sharing the same name. Perhaps it was a, an alias. For such an enigma, this seems like an appropriate place to end his tale. As for Thomas Paine, though, we do know what happened to him. While we aren't done with Thomas Paine for good, we will see him one last time. This was his last ride. His last voyage of any consequence, perhaps his last voyage ever. And honestly, I can't imagine a better send-off. 
Thomas Paine was victorious. His men returned to Providence as heroes. Paine himself was officially recognized by Governor Easton. He was the savior of Rhode Island. All of which makes it curious to me that John Easton, a man who so readily and warmly welcomed this Providence pirate home with wide open arms, it's curious to me that he would treat another pirate out of Providence, Thomas II, with such disdain. Next time, that's happening, for real. We will finally get to Thomas II's return to North America. It's been a long time coming, and his return is going to... It's going to change the trajectory for more than a few pirate careers. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show. Everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon. Everybody who has left us ratings or reviews wherever it is you listen to the show. And everybody who has recommended this show. You all make this possible. Thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight